Professional pickleball player Kyle McKenzie and I take a deep dive into dinking as we discuss different aspects of the shot. I have to admit this is one of my favorite interviews so far on the Pickleball Fire podcast as we really geek out about this one shot, but it's so important as you move into higher levels of play. So let's get to the intro to hear more from Kyle. Welcome to the Pickleball Fire podcast, where it's all about pickleball. Today, I would like to welcome to the Pickleball Fire podcast, Kyle McKenzie. How are you doing today, Kyle? I am doing just fine, Lynn. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It should be it should be a lot of fun. Well, Kyle, I know you are a pro player and instructor, but I do still always like to start out with how did you first hear about pickleball and get involved in the sport? You know, oddly enough, I so I grew up in Squim, Washington, which is in kind of the northwest tip of the state and a smaller, smaller community. And so I, I played tennis in high school. It was kind of the sport that I, I probably started concentrating on the most. I picked it up a little bit later in life, but really fell in love with it. And my high school tennis coach was quite a good player as well. So when I was a young adult, you know, a senior in high school through, you know, about 2021, years of age, him and I would battle out in tennis and uh, really there wasn't a lot of other people in that smaller community that we would compete against. So when I had moved away, he actually kind of retired from tennis, hung up his tennis racket and got into, got into pickleball. So when I moved back home uh, temporarily, I gave him a call to play tennis and he said, no, 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 you're going to be going uh, <laughs> with me to, to try this silly game called pickleball. So I gave it a shot and, you know, I went from playing, you know, once a week to twice a week to quickly catching the catching the bug as we like to call it and really haven't looked back since haven't played tennis much since I found pickleball still a tennis fan uh, as far as being a spectator but just really love so many things about about pickleball and it's been kind of a crazy uh, transition in my life doing so much more with it that I you know really never saw really never saw coming and so what did you really like about pickleball you know, for me, I've always been a tactician at heart. I played uh, poker for a living in my early 20s for a stretch. And I think I've always just been a, a strategist and really love strategy. So really, when I got into it, it was to kind of scratch that itch of this new tactical strategy challenge. And as I got better, you know, I just had more of a craving to learn more shots and, and compete against, you know, higher level players. And then, you know, I wouldn't say this was my initial attraction to it, but after I started playing tournaments and started, you know, meeting more people within the pickleball community. It was just such, such a, a breath of fresh air. It was so uh, positive, so welcoming. And uh, I think that's really uh, played a big role in me staying with pickleball and, and really uh, continuing to enjoy it. I have to ask because I do actually have a really good friend who is uh, quite a good poker player. And after okay. she retires from her initial, you know, career, she will be doing that, I think, full time. Very tell, cool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about how your experiences in poker actually translate into the pickleball court and, you know, even what you teach. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, for poker players or, you know, for people that that play often and, and are really trying to win, I would say, you know, there's a few different styles that can that can help you do that. But the most common style would be a one that's very patient. You're uh, folding, you know, most of the hands that you get and you're really looking to play just a few hands, but play those hands well and really understand your moments for maybe bluffing or your, your moments for what I would call selective aggression. I think uh, pickleball, especially doubles, is very, very 
very similar in regards to the risk and reward. When you think about, you know, watching higher level pickleball matches, how often there's those long dinking exchanges because patients at that or players at that level understand the importance of patience. And so they're always looking to wait for the right time to take a little bit more risk. But generally speaking, they're not just going out there and, and hitting every ball hard. They're kind of picking those moments wisely. And I think the temperament and kind of balancing that risk and reward is very, very similar uh, between the two. Now, that's actually really interesting because my friend who I mentioned before, and I won't say say her name by... <laughs> Don't embarrass her. <laughs> yeah, I, I won't. But, you know, there are times when she can be very patient, but there are also times when she is not so patient. And, you know, she really is a good friend. But I mean, are, are you... Is that your personality? I mean, is, is that how you play not only pickleball, but poker? Well, you know, I... <laughs> It's tough to say. I think, you know, I didn't, you know, when people found out that I played poker, they'd always say, oh, you like to gamble. And not really. I just, I just really like to win. And so I think, I think patience was really a reflection of, I didn't know if I was the smartest poker player, you know, because as you get to the the higher levels of professional, there's a lot of, you know, former MIT students and people who really understand math and, and algorithms and have a really just high level of intelligence. And so to me, I felt like patience was an equalizer. It was the best way to, you know, avoid making mistakes. If I would have tried to be one of the very best in the world in poker, I probably would have had to vary my style a little bit more and win in a more complicated way. But I just just really wanted to win badly. And so I knew that that was the best way for me to do so in pickleball. I will say that, you know, from tennis and, you know, coming from that background, I really love the feeling of ripping ground strokes and feeling kind of the body come through and, and feeling the timing, you know, of all that kind of work together to, to hit a, hit a beautiful forehand or a beautiful backhand. So when I originally found pickleball, I really preferred singles because it allowed me to have more of an aggressive temperament actually. And I've really had to learn to be more patient in, in pickleball and, and understand that, that a certain amount of that is, is very necessary. But even in my, my doubles game, you know, as I'm training, I'm looking for ways I would say to become more of an attacking style player. But I think at the pro level, it probably takes a, a little bit more of a high skill set to be able to, to have a variety of attacks in your arsenal that you can really uh, rely on. It seems like, I would say most of the top level players I would classify as more patient counterpunching style players where there's only a select handful of the top level that really take a little bit more risk consistently. And who would you say that is? Well, one of my good friends, uh, Matt Goble, he doesn't play as many of the pro tour events as as other players now, just because he is a full-time school teacher, but he lives in this area. He, a couple of years ago, partnered pretty consistently with Tyson McGuffin and, uh, and they won a national title and they won a a major at tournament of champions. So they're clearly capable of, you know, beating the best on a given day. And, and Matt, you know, inherently because he's more of an attacking style player is a little bit streakier, but he's clearly somebody who, who can play that style at a high level. I think Ben Johns and Matt Wright both are very capable of it as well, but being at the very top of the game, they're also uh, very capable of being patient and, and, you know, being very effective in long dink rallies as well. But those are three people that, that stand out to me as, as impressive attacking players. I would say uh, Shelton Baptista Webster, the, the unicorn is another person that stands out with, he will dink more aggressively to kind of dictate the tempo and often initiate those, those off the bounce attacks, which is usually a sign of, of an aggressive player. 
And that's one of the things I wanted to get a little bit more into in this interview is, you know, you really talk about the, the patience and dinking. And I think a lot of people who, you know, are more recreational players, they have hopefully gotten to the point where they understand the importance of dinking. But I think they might think of it as just like, okay, well, here's a dink and I'm going to hit a backhander or forehand. I mean, there, there's really more, a lot more to dinking in that in terms of, you know, the types of dinks. And, you know, can you, you talk a little bit about, you know, maybe the push dink or the lift dink or, yeah. you know, whatever other types of dinks you see in there? Um, you know, great. Yeah, great question. So with with the program, so I teach for, for Tyson McGuffin Signature Pickleball Camps and Tyson and I each very much believe in the curriculum that we teach. And one of the main things that I would say it's kind of built around is classifying the two different types of, of main dinks that we teach. One would we, we would refer to as a lift dink, just basically referring to having a little bit more margin of error on that dink and a little bit more safety. So the goal of a lift dink is to really be consistent with the shot, be able to make a high percentage yourself, but keep the dink relatively unattackable, allow yourself to, to make it land in the kitchen. But what you... And, for oftentimes what you're inherently giving up with the lift dink is because you're putting more ball shape and more air under the ball, you are vulnerable to a good attacking player potentially initiating an attack, you know, off the bounce with that shot. Now, with the the other type of dink we would refer to as the push dink. This is essentially a dink that you're waiting uh, for the ball to sit up. So you would use the push dink when your opponent is, is hitting a lift dink at you. Essentially, your opponent is being maybe very careful, trying to be very consistent. The push dink is a shot that's used where you're acknowledging that you yourself are taking a little bit more risk, but the goal of the shot is to put your opponent under a little bit more pressure, play a more linear ball near their feet, maybe making it a little bit more awkward for them. Maybe there's some indecision about whether they should take the ball out of the air or take the ball off the bounce. But the foundation of us helping our students uh, understand that risk and reward is really understanding each of those types of dinks. And my goal with most of my students, as I say, what I would love for you to, to have after, after today or after the end of camp is when you're watching matches and you're watching these long dinking exchanges, you know, especially at the pro level, you're not just looking at, oh, okay, this dink exchange is going on for a long time, but you're able to see which team is in control and, you know, with the push dink and which team is lifting and kind of just get trying to get back to neutral with that lifting. And a lot of times in higher level play, it really switches two or three times throughout the point as to which team is in control and which team is not in control. And it's very important to understand which, uh, which role you're in because you understand how to take risk and how to gradually build a point as you're the team that's in control hitting the push dinks. But when you're the team hitting the lift dinks, it's important to understand, Hey, it's okay that I'm not in control right now. I can just play my dink with a little bit more margin for error and look for that opportunity to take control back, but not maybe get too impatient trying to feel like, well, Hey, I don't, I don't like being on a string here doing all the moving. I want to move you. It's, it's important to get back to neutral first and then, uh, and then try to take control. One thing I wanted to ask you about in terms of what you had just said is I'm not sure if I totally get the concept of being linear. Sure. I would say a ball that is going more straight or closer to the net. It's more of a line drive. If that ball, uh, a line drive ball is more at your feet, there's more weight at shot, weight of shot. If you're not willing to take that out of the air and kind of hold your position, it's more likely to push you off the line and force you to play maybe a dink that's a half volley or right off the bounce, which generally is a little bit more difficult. You don't have as much time to react to it. And that ball is 
after it bounces, it's accelerating up into the paddle as opposed to a ball that bounces more slowly and has more of an arc to it when it bounces and you have time to wait for it to sit up to the apex of his at its, of its bounce, that ball is moving a little bit slower. And so it's a little bit easier to maneuver and to control. I just wanted to break in here and say, as pickleball players, we want to get better at the sport. And it was in a recent interview with Hella Spar, I realized I didn't even do 10% of what she talked about on the court. So I've signed up for a doubles course, and you may want to consider doing so too. You can get more information by going to pickleballfire.com doubles. And just to let you know, I do make an affiliate commission if you purchase her course, and this helps to support the Pickleball Fire podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. That's actually a great explanation because for some reason, when you talked about it being linear, that wasn't... Was it resonating? No, it <laughs> wasn't. But when you talk about a line drive, line drive you know, right, yeah, right. To- totally get that in terms sure, of the wording. Sure. But yeah, I mean, one of the things too that you just mentioned was that, you know, the difference between taking a ball out of the air versus stepping back. You know, I mean, how do you make that decision? Yeah. Well, what I would tell my students is, and, and this is a, a concept within teaching that uh, maybe controversial is the wrong word, but I know of some good instructors who teach it a different way. I know maybe more the old school, I would say philosophy would be, you know, don't step off the kitchen line. You know, you're in good position, just stay there. If it's a ball that's, you know, it's at your feet, just learn how to take it right off the bounce or try to take a very, very high percentage of balls out of the air. And, and I've, I've heard instructors say it's, it's a limited skill set, you know, taking a, a step back off the line all the time. I, I look at it a different way. I think for my my students, I tell them that you want your first instinct as your uh, that dink is coming at you. Your instinct should be to hold your ground and to try to take the ball out of the air. I think if it's you know uh, knee high or higher, if it's crossing your body at a higher location, it's really really critical that you hold your ground and you take it out of the air. Otherwise, you will be pushed way too far off of the line. But there's times where we can overreach and get too eager to take everything out of the air. Uh, the distinction that I talk about is when we lock our arm and we don't have, are not able to maintain any bend in our elbow, there's a correlation between a locked arm and the usage of the wrist and getting a little bit off balance. So if I feel myself overreaching or locking my arm and kind of falling forward a little bit, to me at that point, I say, Hey, there's an easier way. I might take a step back and, and, and play this as a half volley. And, and I guess really the principle of, of, of me uh, teaching my students it's, it's okay uh, to take a step back is really just not settling for a more difficult shot if you don't need to. So you want your instinct to be to, to hold your ground and not dance around too much and, and kind of lose track of good court positioning. But to me, if you're making your dink, dink a little easier for yourself and stepping back and letting that ball sit up and taking it off the bounce, I think that's perfectly acceptable. The other thing a little bit more advanced is uh, the direction that the game is going Oftentimes taking a step back from the kitchen line is a great way to wait for that ball to sit up a little bit higher and stay in front of you. And that's one of the best ways to initiate offense, either with that push dink uh, that we were referring to, the more offensive type of dink, or an off the bounce attack is something that we're starting to see happen more frequently as you know higher level skill set athletes are coming in and, and the game is getting a little bit more to be more of an attacking style game at the top level. Still patience you know, matters quite a bit, but we're starting to see the top teams not just win with dinking, but winning with some some more aggressive plays. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you were talking about kind of the variation, I think, in tactics here, depending on your skill level. 
I mean, what level of player should really be taking the ball, I guess, out of the air and or stepping back? I mean, how do you differentiate that between the two? I think, you know, if, if I'm teaching somebody who's new, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think a little bit more long term with their game at the same time, you know, I want them to enjoy it and be competitive, you know, as soon as possible. So I would say, I think if they're, they're new, I think practicing again, that instinct of, of being willing to stay on the line and not get, not get dancing too much with those feet, I think is, is probably the most important thing. And I would, I would be teaching that, that lifting, that first stink most of the time, I probably wouldn't start really talking about uh, really trying to add, uh, you know, a push stink regularly into someone's arsenal until maybe they're, you know, at a higher three, five level, maybe a four Oh level, but it seems like, you know, the first step in winning at pickleball is just really putting one more ball in play, right. And understanding patience goes a long way and really giving your opponents an opportunity to beat themselves. So I would, I would say understanding how to do that volley dink where you're taking the dink out of the air and holding your ground and the lift dink would be what I would start with. And as you needed to win in a more variety of ways and not just basically let your opponents beat themselves, but in, instead maybe earn some errors from them, maybe a three, five, four Oh level. At that point, I would start thinking about, you know, with my students adding in that more aggressive push dink and starting to understand when it's the right time to maybe try, try and attack off the bounce when our opponents are maybe not ready for it. But probably regardless of level, just stay away from the dancing. Is that the moral of the story? Well, I think, yeah, I think, I think you want to, you know, it's, it's tough to give a, a distinctive answer on it. I mean, I, I wouldn't want people to keep their feet glued at the kitchen line and lean and take big steps. I think what I teach is shuffling, staying on your toes and shuffling across the line. But if you go up or back, so if I increase my space up and, and step into the kitchen and take a dink off the bounce, or I take a step back, I think it's key to take one step and keep your other foot near that kitchen line so that you can, I call it keeping an anchor so that you can bring that leg right back and not maybe lose sight of, of where you're at on the court. I know for people as they, they move uh, their feet a little bit more, they start dancing or they make more than one adjustment. It's very hard to keep your eyes up and pay attention to the point and remember where you're at on the court. So I like to think shuffle across the line, but if you're moving up or back, keep one foot there as an anchor and try to take one adjustment, not. Excellent. Excellent analogy. I, I really do love that. <laughs> okay. Thank you. All right. Well, one of the things in terms of dinking that I, I think you might've touched on a little bit when you first started, but I do want to emphasize where in the kitchen, when you dink, should the ball land, you know, on the opponent's side of the court? Yeah, it's a great question. One of the words that uh, really resonated with me and, you know, I've, I've had the, the good fortune of teaching with, with a variety of different pros. And, uh, you know, to be honest, we all steal from each other. You know, it's, it's, it's really nice to be able to take, you know, take something from someone else and say, you know, I teach the third shot drop this way or dinking this way. But, I, you know, I heard somebody else use some phrasing that, that makes it even a little bit more sense. And so in regards to dinking, I taught with uh, Rob Cassidy and one uh, thing that he mentioned that really st stood out to me was he mentioned the dinking shallow or thinking about dinking shallow. And that's such an important word because most people really, to me, don't understand why dinks are popped up. I make the same mistake myself when I pop a dink up at times, I'll say, oh, too high, too high. And you hear that all the time when someone hits a dink and it gets popped up and, and slammed at them, they say too high. But I really ask my students to think about a dink isn't popped up simply because of height alone. It's popped up because of height 
plus distance, right? So um, dinking shallow is a great word to think of because it helps us keep our dinks unattackable if we think of having it shallow in the box or the first half of the box. But when we think of that term shallow, we still are going to use and can use a good amount of net clearance so that it's not such a high risk shot for us. So that the problem with thinking of, oh, too high, whenever we get to have a dink popped up is the adjustment that we make is we start aiming lower to the net rather than realizing that if we can master our height, but just make it soft height, that's really the ticket. I can really relate to that. I remember one time I was playing against one of the tennis pros at a club and he was really new to pickleball, but you know, he had all those great skills and we ended up just getting into a rally where we were both like hitting the top of the net. So, I mean, we were definitely much lower than we need to be. We should have had much more clearance, but it was very difficult to get to because, you know, it landed so short in the box. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, 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 I think it takes a little while to, to fully understand, you know, ball shape and trajectory, but it really is one of the, the more underrated, more underrated skill sets that I think it just takes time for everyone. I know it certainly did for me. You know, I think this has actually been a really great conversation. I have not been in depth with anybody on thinking. <laughs> and, you know, what I what I really love about this is that the way you talk about it, you, you, can, you know, at least I can very much visualize it. So, well, I, I appreciate that. I know I'm definitely geeking out right now. And, I, you know, I'm certainly used to explaining this when I can visually present it as well. So hopefully I'm not, not talking over the heads of, of people too much and trying to, <laughs> trying to paint, paint the, uh, the best picture I can. You know, and, and that's actually a great point. I mean, I know you and Tyson actually have quite a few videos out there. So talk a little bit about what you have to offer. Yeah. So, you know, so this summer Tyson and I kind of took advantage of, you know, of COVID and all the, the, the quarantining and, you know, not having as much to do. And we, we hired a, a videographer and we wrote up, basically we, we ha- had a little powwow where we were teaching, you know, each of us, you know, had been teaching Tyson probably for a couple of years traveling the country and myself for a year, year and a half. And we, we realized was almost all the issues that, that people have at these different camps and clinics when we did video analysis with them is there was common themes, you know, across the board. So we just decided to put our heads together and write down a variety of common tendencies that we saw of, of potential mistakes that people were making in their games and just decided to slowly go through and, and identify those and then kind of give people that, that maybe have that issue, a path of, you know, some drills and maybe some competitive games as a way to, to work on, on fixing that problem. So we decided to, to go with YouTube as our avenue of releasing those videos and ultimately decided we were going to release them just for free to kind of help the, the pickleball community and get a little bit more educated and good, good for each of our, our individual brands. So that is something that's happened quite recently. I think we've have five or six of those videos released now on YouTube. And if you wanted to subscribe to the MacGuffin club, the plan is to release an additional three instructional videos per week for the next, next several weeks. So I, I think it's a lot of, a lot of good content. We definitely go very in depth because we were originally making these with the intent of, of sending them two individuals where we'd recognize, Hey, this is exactly, you know, your two or three issues. But I think compared to a lot of other stuff out there, it's, it's some pretty in-depth analysis. And, and we tried to create some fun little games and, and drills that go with the skill set that we're, uh, that we're talking about. 
I agree with you totally. I, I watched a couple of the dinking videos, which allowed me to come up with some, hopefully, questions that would, <laughs> you know, br bring some of this out of you. I mean, not yeah. that you wouldn't have anyways, but... But uh, yeah, yeah, actually, I thought the videos were great. And like you said, I mean, they're really in, in depth. And, you know, I've, I've definitely seen lots of videos on the internet, and they, they all have, you know, things you can learn from. But I, I have to say, I did actually really enjoy the couple that I watched. Well, thank you. I think Tyson and I, I mean, we're friends, but I think we have some some kind of natural uh, chemistry back and forth. He's he's much more charismatic than me. Um, I'm a little bit more of a tactical geek at times. So I think we uh, hopefully we bring out the the best in each other and in, in that dual dual teaching dynamic. Yeah, and that, that makes a lot of sense. I that I'm can totally geek. I, I'm such a big geek. Actually, I've probably never said that, that on the podcast before, but it's okay. Let your <laughs> let your geek flag fly, Lynn. That's all right. All right. Well, just a couple of questions to finish up. Oh, I sure. do like to ask the pros, which pickleball paddle do you use and why? Yeah. So I use the the Selkirk Invicta. I'm, I'm sponsored by Selkirk. They're a great company. They have fantastic paddles. They have a really nice blend of, of consistency, which, you know, consistency is obviously so important, but enough, you know, enough pop to, to get the job done as well. I, I use the Invicta. It's a little bit longer handle and for singles and, and sometimes in doubles, I will use a two-handed backhand. So having a little bit of that extra length of the handle is important. And then it also has that slightly longer rectangular shape, which again, is for singles players, that one one or two inches extra in reach really does make a big difference when you're trying to give your opponent a small target, uh, you know, for passing shots when you're up at the net volleying. So it's a paddle I've used for a couple of years and really like it. It served me, served me well. Alrighty. Well, I have a feeling that there's going to be quite a number of people who will want to get lessons or attend a camp or a clinic that you're doing. So where is the best place to find information on that and or to reach out to you? Yeah. So I, like I said, I am the, the head instructor for Tyson McGuffin uh, Signature Pickleball Camp. So I will do a certain number of camps where I will assist Tyson, but a pretty heavy percentage where I am leading uh, the camp myself. So if you go to TysonMcGuffin.com, it has the full list of, of camps for about the next six months. I think my my next one that I'm going to be leading, I will be in Orlando, uh, Orlando Florida uh, in early April here and pretty excited for that one. I'm bringing my, my family. I have four little kids at home. And when I knew that I was teaching Orlando in Orlando, it was uh, the same time as their spring break. So we decided to make a big uh, family trip out of it. So we're pretty excited. We're going to Disney World at the same time, time that I'm uh, that I'm teaching. All right. Well, that is very cool. And I hope <laughs> you and your family really enjoy Orlando. I'm sure we will. Thanks so much. All right. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. This was great. I love getting down and deep into the instructional aspect. And I know the people who listen to the Pickleball Fire podcast really enjoy that too. Well, thank you, Lynn. Thanks for, for geeking out with me. It was a good time. Thank you for listening to the Pickleball Fire podcast. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to give it a five-star review on Apple iTunes.